Hello, print friends, and welcome to a special bonus episode. I am coming to you live from the IFPDA Print Fair. This is my chat with David Tunick, president of the IFPDA and owner of David Tunick, Inc., Old Master Prints and Drawings. We sat down together in his booth truly just minutes before the fair was opening on Thursday. We are kept company in this conversation by the art from Durr, Cronach, and Monk on the walls of his booth. You can hear the buzz of the fair in the background, people talking, cell phones going off, and the occasional last-minute construction work. This is a treat, print friends. And if you want more live from the IFPDA print fair content, check out the Hello Print Friend Instagram, where I did an hour-long Instagram live walkthrough tour of the entire fair. We talked to the people at High Point and Wingate. We run into the lovely Delita Martin. It is a very fun time. That is Instagram.com slash HelloPrintFriend. So check that out. And without further ado, here's David. Hi, David. How's it going? Good morning. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for letting me steal a few minutes of your time here at the fair. Sure. A very exciting moment because the doors open up, what now, in about 53, 52 minutes. And counting. We've only been waiting for three years for this moment. (laughs) I know, I know. Post-pandemic, you know. It's very, very exciting. So before I get to my questions, there's a little bit of a background fair ambiance there of the setup. Would you let people know who you are and where you're based and what you do? I'm me. I'm I'm David Tunick, and I am an art dealer specializing in works of art on paper, prints and drawings primarily. Drawings encompasses watercolors, gouaches, and so on. In New York City, on the Upper East Side, we have a gallery and a townhouse. A sign in front, we're in a building that has several such galleries, and our clients know we're there. An appointment is not necessary, although most people call Mm. before they come in, and we cover a very broad range chronologically from 15th century to classic 20th century. You might say from Durer and Rembrandt to Picasso, Matisse, and Warhol, for example, and Johns. Mm, Very exciting. And how did you get into print dealing? Oh, the usual way. I decided not to go to medical school, (laughs) you know. I was doing biochemistry and genetics and so on, and I thought for me to come out as an educated person from Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, I took, I wanted to take some music and art courses, and I did, and so that changed changed my path. Mm. And I started to buy prints. I've always been acquisitive as a kid I collected matchbook covers and cut pictures of automobiles and put out of magazines and put them into scrapbooks. I've always been a collector of sorts, pennies mm. from different years and different mints, whatever I could afford, which was almost nothing. But I started to buy in college prints for $8, $12, $40. A Picasso came along that was $400 when I was in my second or third year of collecting prints. That was how I discovered print. Luckily, at Williams College, the museum was both large enough and small enough so that our classes met Mm. in the museum. So we were surrounded by original works of art from the very beginning. And the professors would often pass around prints and drawings from the college collection. And that was just incredibly exciting to me, that I could touch something that Rembrandt had touched or that Durr had actually touched. And so this Picasso came along, and it was $400. And 
there was no way that I could afford that. For one thing, I was buying a motorcycle at the same time <laughs> that was also $400. And so I was able to borrow money from an upperclassman. And then I went out on the road to pay him back selling encyclopedias door to door. I loved encyclopedias as a kid. And so I think that if you're enthusiastic about something, you're going to be a much better advocate for Absolutely. it. Absolutely. And so that was how I learned that I could sell. I just went door to door and instead of going on a skiing trip that spring with my buddies uh, from school, I sold encyclopedias door to door and I was able to get the Picasso and the motorcycle. And cut, <laughs> cut your teeth a little bit in the selling world. And I you did. Know? I yeah. did. And then I was leading bicycle tours in Europe and in Canada. Kids who were just two, three years younger than I was. And I discovered galleries in Paris. And I thought, God, I'm the only person in the world that knows about these places. Well, it turned out that they were very well known all over the world. <laughs> but nonetheless, I got to know the owners. And we were lifelong friends of these two different galleries. And I bought my first Durer in that circumstance. Oh, and I brought fun. it back. And I was in Boston my first year out of, out of Williams. And I knew there was... A, thing you were supposed to do with old master prints called research, but I had no idea <laughs> what in what was entailed. So I went over to the Boston Museum and went inside and asked a guard. I said, is there a department of prints? I think there is, prints and drawings. And so he showed me the door and I knocked at the door and this woman came to the door and looked down her, I must say, her very Boston Brahmin nose at me, if you will, and said, what do you want, young man? <laughs> She was quite tall, or looked quite tall to me at that moment, anyhow. And I said, I've bought a Durr print. She said, what do you do? I said, I'm an art dealer. She said, oh, come in. And she turned out to be Ursaire, whose name I didn't know at the time. She was the granddaughter of Woodrow Wilson, President Wilson, and the sister of Woodrow Wilson's here, who was a great minister in, in Washington, who I believe officiated at the Kennedy funeral, in fact. So she had long, long roots and ties. And she was the world's expert in Goya, for example, mm -hmm. and in many areas. So she said to me, what book would you like as a reference? And I said, I really don't know. And so she pulled Mater off the shelf, which is the Bible right. up until a few years ago for judging the quality of, of Durer engravings and woodcuts. About 100 gravings. Durer did about 100 gravings and about 200 woodcuts. And so then she quickly discovered I didn't know how to read German. <laughs> and with that, she exploded at me and excoriated me. How could I begin to call myself an art dealer? And she kicked me out. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was an oh, my God moment. I was trembling. Nobody had spoken to me like that since I was a child. And so I called her the next day. I, by that time, I'd done my, a little bit of research about her. I knew she discovered who she was. Very important head of that department. A great scholar, recognized all over the world, decorated by the government in Spain for her work in Goya. And I invited her to lunch at the Union Oyster House, which I couldn't really afford, but it was the best-known seafood restaurant in Boston. I'd never been there. So she went to lunch with me. I think it was the next day. And she became a lifelong friend. And she picked up the phone and she called, you know, scholars and historians that she knew, both at Harvard and Yale, for example. She said to me, you have to go to graduate school. You have to learn French and German. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she then picked up the phone and I was invited to both of them without applying. And uh, so in the interim period, my professor, the great Lane Faison at Williams, who inspired so many Williams graduates to go into art history 
particularly into museum work. Mm. I mean, people from my class turned out to be directors at places like the, and around my class, National Gallery, Art Institute of Chicago, the Getty, Atlanta, and so on, all over the country, San Francisco. So it was a great time. I, I had an, an instant network yeah. that way. But it, meanwhile, Lane Faison, Professor Faison, arranged for me to go to the Met. And I went and I worked under Hyatt Mayer, who was the mm-hmm. great and revered curator emeritus. Mr. Mayer still came in every day, and it was great to be working with him and with John McHenry, who was the curator in charge of Prince for a, a short time and who knew that collection like the back of his hand. So my assignment the first year was to work on Durer mm-hmm. and on the second year on Rembrandt. And of course, that was extremely edifying and eye-opening. I looked up old watermarks for them, all the collector stamps. My handwriting is still in most of the mats, or a lot of the mats in Durer collection, for example. And it was very heady stuff having somebody like Philippe de Montebello, who wasn't yet director, but who was a chief curator or the head of paintings. I can't remember what his title was then. And Mr. Hoving used to come to me too. He was then the director. And they'd say, can we lend this? What do you think to the Uffizi or to the Wu? Uh-huh. And I was, you know, off about 22 years old or something <laughs> like that. I'd spent one year in Boston and then realized that I had to come to New York in order to establish myself with the kind of aspirations I had for mm. eventually becoming what I hoped would be a successful art dealer specializing at the time in prints. And it was from drawings from almost the very beginning also. Yeah. And so that was that's a long-winded answer to your no, very short and simple it. question. I'm... How did you get started with Prince? So as a collector, as a student working at the Met, unpaid, I might add, mm. unpaid. Yeah. Uh, and I went to, sh- to graduate school for not very long. I went mm-hmm. to Columbia, which was an interesting experience, and started to do catalogs about five years out which I sent all over the world. And I thought, how am I going to compete with the likes of Bob, who did these extensive catalogs with long essays, long, long essays, and or with Burner, which had been mm-hmm. in business since the 19th century. You know, these voluminous catalogs full of scholarship. And mine were fairly simple. They were straightforward. It was the nuts and bolts. Was it a very fine impression, a brilliant impression, a fairly good impression? What was the condition? And always everything illustrated. Mm. And somehow that struck a chord and got an audience. And I was traveling around at the same time with my St. Bernard dog. I had traded a print for St. Bernard dog. And he and I traveled all around the country by car and my first car I was able to buy for myself a Volvo station wagon and he, he that dog I named him Baynard after the print after the artist <laughs> Baynard the other I have started with two of them the other one was named Buho after the artist Buho <laughs> I gave him away two or too many but anyway Baynard was the only dog allowed in many museums around the country that came to know him and that's beautiful <laughs> and I would go to a place let's say Minneapolis or Detroit And the museum director or the head of prints would call collectors in town and say, you should should come in, this young guy is coming, this new guy, or would you like him to come over to your house and Mm -hmm. you should see what he has. So I got to know people through that traveling, the network of museum directors I became very friendly with. And, and with the catalogs. And I started doing those catalogs about five years out, and I did them every year, sometimes a couple of years, spend the whole summer writing them. 
and putting them together. I did the whole thing, the layouts, the design, the whole, the whole, the whole bit, and uh, enjoyed it. And so. <laughs> Those were the or and I always aspired. There was a wonderful dealer and a very good dealer in Boston at the time named Bob Light, and he had a, a townhouse and he had. At any rate, I thought, God, that is just that's where I want to be, you know, mm-hmm. my own townhouse. And so I did that. Eventually, I saved up money and bought a house a half a block from the Met. Beautiful. And was there, there for twenty years, and so that that was really how things uh, got got started. I mean, the townhouse came, you know. 15 years later or something yeah. like that when I was about 35 and and so yeah and these days I don't travel I travel very little I, I, I used to go to Europe every about every six to eight weeks mm-hmm. and in those days the what the American print dealers did they'd go to Europe in May and June when there'd be a round of auctions in Munich and Hamburg and in Switzerland, in Bern. London was almost an afterthought at that point. Then that became part of the tour as well. And the dealers would buy their inventory for the whole year and, wow. and bring it back. And so I I got onto, into that routine and then became much more active about it. I, for a while, I, I came very close to buying an apartment in London. I lived in an apartment in London for a long, every, every time I was there, the same place I was able to use. And and then and I bought quite a lot at auction for museums, the Met National Gallery, lots of collectors, and then we stopped buying an auction. We buy about zero in auction hmm. in the last twenty years because we get so much back. We're offered things. I don't want to say every day of the week, but almost. Wow. And so maybe one out of every 500 or 1,000 are good enough to acquire. Mm-hmm. We try to stick to the top levels, the very best things in our field that it's possible to find on the market these days, whether it's old master or whether it's 20th century or 19th century. For example, this Medigliani gouache right behind me here on the wall or this hand-painted monk Madonna. Can't find this stuff anywhere anywhere else. Yeah. And I'm, I'm proud to say that. I don't think it's a false kind of boast. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's our niche is supposed to be at the very top of the market for works of art on paper. And I'd like to think that that's where we've landed and where we've perhaps been for quite a while, but you have to ask others. I can't yeah. <laughs> render complete judgment on myself, only partial. <laughs> yeah. So you, you mentioned a couple of the really beautiful pieces that you have here in your booth. What else have you brought that you're really excited about that you'd love to like get a chance to talk about a little well, bit? Well, what's on the walls is really just kind of a tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say we could feel this in, uh, or, or exhibit in this entire space here, but probably close. We have thousands of things in inventory. I have a hundred year outlook and I still do. Mm. Thinking, I'm ne- when I get something, it really doesn't matter to me 95% of the time, whether we sell it the next day or whether we still have it 30 or 40 years later. There are plenty of things in this stand in the boxes under the table that's full there with a few hundred things. It's not just the whatever it is, 20 things we have on the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, the boxes are full here. We have many things more in the gallery here on 69th between 5th and Madison. And many, many more things in the warehouse. We have one group of things alone that's over a thousand prints, French 18th century prints. They haven't seen the light of day in many, many years. Mm. Largest collection of French 18th century in, in private hands anywhere. 
So what else do we have here? Well, it's, I'd like to think that this stand and the way we go about most of our booths, we call them stands in Europe, or in Europe they're called stands, yeah. in America they're called booths. Anyway, in this booth, I'd like to think that we have an exhibition or a couple of exhibitions within our exhibition of the booth. So we've got, what, five, six, eight, eight, eight monks, all of which we sold in the 80s and early 90s to one collector. And wonderful man, very elegant man, great refined taste, Viennese born, and he loved beautiful things. For example, I could never get him to buy a monk scream. He loved monk, but the scream had too much anxiety to it for mm-hmm. him. So th- this Madonna that I have already referred to, hand-painted, might be the most beautiful one anywhere. Printed, painted, whatever. First of all, there are only something like five or six that are accepted as truly painted by, by monk. And he makes her into a gorgeous and beautiful woman with the coloring in mm-hmm. this and by having removed part of the border that has a fetus and spermatozoa swimming around that makes it a much harsher kind of message mm. uh, what else the lonely ones in the middle we have it both in the earliest impression known of the dry point yeah. and probably the earliest impression known of the woodcut you know like Degas he went back to some of the same subjects over and over again and, and worked them over. Sometimes over a period of 20 years, in fact, he would go back. He was very, very experimental, one of the great printmakers of all times. What else is a favorite? A chronic in the middle, mm-hmm. the Johns on the outside of the stand. I've got a lot of favorites. As I mentioned, I think I might be the only serious dealer who consider Chagall to have been a great artist from <laughs> begin we have a nineteen seventeen painting that I don't have here, self portrait that's mm. fantastically a game changing kind of painting when we finally we've shown it once and we'll show it again in probably in Maastricht in, in March. Uh, but we have here this Chagall, Daphnis, and Chloe. I think that Chagall was a brilliant artist from beginning to end. There's nothing wrong with being a happy artist. <laughs> you know, that's almost like a Monet, that leaf that is yeah, open it's there. Gorgeous. The Daphnis and, and Chloe. Beautiful. Well, in the time that we have left, I'd love for you to talk a little bit to kind of the future of the print market. You said you have a hundred year vision. What do you think is on the horizon for printmaking? I think it's an extremely exciting time. I can remember, without any difficulty, we had Coons here for a mm-hmm. discussion in 2000, I think it was 19. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I said to him, those great prints that are over at Two Palms, those huge great prints that are in the print fair, I said, I don't believe you've touched them physically. You weren't where the different components were made, which were in different parts of the world. What what makes them original? Mm. And so what I was thinking back to was when I started and when I came up, the Print Council of America, which is the, the museum curators specializing in prints, issued the definition of an original print. And it was very exacting. And essentially it was the artist had to actually put his hand to the matrix, whether yeah. it was a wood block, a lithographic stone, a copper plate for etching or engraving and so forth. And so I said to Coons, what makes that particular one original, this huge, beautiful thing? 
And his answer was only, he pointed to his head. And of course, that meant that he had conceived it. Yeah. And so I think it's a very exciting time. In a, in a certain way, I even thought the NFTs, while a little bit to me anyway, I don't want to use the word ridiculous, but in, in some <laughs> other, I thought that even applies to the NFTs. It's an exciting time. Mm. So we're still shaking out, and I think it's ever evolving what constitutes an, an original print. As to the market part of mm. your question, look, at, there's been a print market for, there's been an art market for thousands of years. Truly. Mm-hmm. That's never going to change. Okay, it's it's instinctual to people who are collectors to want to own things and to want to surround themselves with things that inspire them, whether they're beautiful or not beautiful. That is never going to change. Are there going to be dips and valleys? Of course there are. We don't know if a dip or a valley is six months or six years or 20 years. Well, tastes change. Yes, they always do. Think about... 18th century British portraiture, for example, paintings that were so incredibly valuable in the 1920s and for which there is almost no market today. There are other areas like that that one could, could point to. I'm dumbstruck that certain artists that many of us were raised to appreciate as in the iconic realm, you know, the the forever Mm. saints, for lack of a better word, in the art world, untouchable greats, that markets have plunged for certain artists, like late 19th century French Bonard Vuillard Toulouse-Lautrec come to mind. Mm. That market is off of what it was. Do I think it'll come back? I don't have a crystal ball. People (laughs) say to me, what's a good investment? I said, you're coming to the wrong person. Mm. Uh, I don't counsel you to buy art as an investment. Buy it because you want to and you appreciate it. On the other hand, the art market has been in general like the stock market. Yeah. On the ascendancy for thousands of years and the print market, certainly since the 15th century, it's on the ascendancy. And I don't see that changing especially for the major names. Right. Now, there was a time when people would come to the galleries here in New York in the Upper East Side and on 57th Street, the old master galleries, and would come in every week or every month and go through the boxes and see what was new and very excited about minor things as well as major things. That's almost disappeared. Mm. The only time people go through our boxes is at this print fair and we don't take them to other fairs because it's only about what's on the walls. So that has changed. I'm not sure whether it will change back. Possibly not. But as I say, nobody really has, you know, incredible foresight to be able to predict. Absolutely. Well, and I think that, you know, what you spoke to of buying it because you love it and because you want it in your life, like... That's the best investment you but can I make. But I also want you to understand it, you know, besides loving it, try to put it in some context. I'll tell it, let's say a collector is looking at the character in this booth, or mm-hmm. the, the Durer, Night, Death, and the Devil, or the, the, the guy, Unique Bather. You know, I think they should look at every bather that Degas made in Prince, mm-hmm. maybe in Pastels, mm-hmm. to put it into context and to understand what it comes from, uh, what it goes to, 
how many of them did he make, how many different designs. I, I find that incredibly exciting. Did you also want to talk about the IFPDA? Because yeah. Because I think it's so central to all of us who are in this business. Do your listeners already know what the IFPDA is? I would guess that most of them do, but let me let me set you up with a question. We can just like edit it right back in there because I think that is important for sure. So I'll be like, so what has brought us together here is the IFPDA fair, which is, you know, the International Fine Print Dealers Association, their fair, at least from my perspective, it's the most important one that I've seen and that I've been to. But I'd love if you could speak to kind of your involvement with the IFPDA and as a dealer, how it affects the way you do what you do and supports it. Yes, well, the IFPDA, we have roughly 150, 160 members worldwide. I have the both the, the honor and the responsibility of being the current president. I'm now in my second three-year term. And it's been an extremely interesting time, beginning with the number of crises when I mm. came in. We had had a director for 12 years. It was time for a change. And we hired another director, extremely nice person, as the first director was. Also a very nice person, very effective in her time. Second director that I, that I brought on, just within a month or two of my mm. becoming president. Didn't really work out. Wonderful man. And so we were running the association day to day. We, that is we on the board. Yeah. I'm the chair of the board, president of the organization. And then we hired Jenny Gibbs, whom mm-hmm. I know you've interviewed, who has just done a fabulous job, full of energy, a lot of brains, good training. And she's just a go-go person which is what we needed. We had a financial crisis, and we were able to work that out. We closed our office during the pandemic, our physical office, and that's worked out extremely well. We have a full-time staff all working from home. We're talking about reopening office again in New York, and and we may, but my responsibility really is to the membership. Mm -hmm. I will never make a decision entirely on my own. It has to be a consensus of the board or a vote of the board. Naturally, there are decisions that are made every day. That's why you have an executive director and why Mm -hmm. I speak to her several times a week. But for major questions, it has to be the board. And we reach out as often as we can to our membership, which is one thing I love about the IFPDA is how we have this enormous range chronologically, dealers selling things from 15th century to things that, heck, I was in one walking around vetting the fair this morning. I was in one stand where the publisher said to me, we have a lot of publishers who belong, who said, oh, God, this was just, just came off the press over the weekend. We just framed it. And I thought, God, isn't that fantastic? I and love that. It's going to be seen here for the, for the first time. I thought it was very, very exciting. As a lot of these booths are, most of them are. The board represents our membership in being both major dealers um, in the in the organization we have dealers for example like Hauser and Worth and and Pace and David Zwerner and we have a lot of dealers who operate on their own out of their 
apartments or homes, mm-hmm. whether it's in Montreal or in Omaha or all over the world. I've tried to make it more international in terms of representation on the board. I'm very careful to have a board that is balanced in gender, nationality, not New York-centric, mm-hmm. even though I'm a New Yorker. My responsibility, I appoint committees. Uh, I try to make sure that everybody's in communication. We moved here to the Javits my first year. I love this space, but we're always evaluating where we should be. I think this is a, a gorgeous space, looking out over the river and these girders and this yeah, architecture. It's beautiful. Yeah, I think it's really uh, wonderful. So our, our main, the way I see it, our, our main mission, of course it's a trade organization, but it's our responsibility to inform the rest of the world, or at least the art world, that prints are not reproductions, and they are not (laughs) poor second cousins of paintings or sculpture. They're just as important to the great painter engravers like Goya, Rembrandt, Durer, Picasso, as their other works Mm -hmm. were to them or are to them. So that's that's how I see it. I'm also very happy and proud of the fact that we can, we were very early in this whole matter of our changing tumultuous social political situation in the world. We were very early in DEI and I think that um, our committees in that regard have done a great job in advocating and giving people the opportunity to, to show here who might not have otherwise and to participate in the, in the organization. Beautiful. Well, David, I can see that the fair is starting to fill up so I might need to let you go. But I really appreciate you taking some time this morning on this really exciting day. As you say, we're back from the pandemic and sharing your fascinating stories. I hope we can talk at length another time and have you on for a full episode. Thank you for inviting me. And all of you out there listening to this are invited to come to the gallery. Give us a ring anytime or just walk in Monday to Friday. Beautiful. And come to the fair. Yes, it's amazing here. Thank you. Well, that's the end of our bonus episode, Print Friends. Many thanks to the IFPDA for the invitation and for arranging this conversation. But we are not going to stop there with the hot Print Fair content, Print Friends. No, no, no. In just a few weeks, I'm going to release my conversation with the incredible artist Derek Adams and our patron saint of printmaking, Jordan Schnitzer, both recorded at the IFPDA Print Fair. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.